Welcome to the Academic CME Podcast. As always, this program is a top quality accredited CE activity. If you would like to receive credit for this or any other Academic CME Podcast, please click the link in the description below or go to academiccme.com forward slash podcast. Welcome to this continuing education program entitled Scientific Updates to Improve Outcomes in Patients with Alzheimer's Disease, Strategies to Care for Alzheimer's Patients During COVID-19. Today's topic is the role of genetics and mechanisms of synaptic dysfunction. This activity is supported by an independent educational grant from Biogen and is provided by Academic CME. Hello, my name is Dr. Richard Isaacson. I'm an associate professor of neurology and director of the Alzheimer's Prevention Clinic at Weill Cornell Medicine in New York Presbyterian. I am very pleased to be joined today by my colleague, Roberta Moronju. She's an assistant professor of neuroscience in the Department of Neurological Surgery in the Brain and Mind Research Institute at Weill Cornell Medicine. Roberta, it's great to have you, and um, I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Hi, Richard. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Um, so, Believe it or not, we have talked multiple times this week uh, because we're both at Wild Cornell. Uh, we work on some really cool projects together where we're trying to take kind of uh, maybe how medicine will be practiced in 2025, 2030. We're trying to apply some of those principles uh, the, of future medicine uh, today. And a big part of that is using genetics to inform care. Um, I think most people who are listening um, understand the term precision medicine, and precision medicine really is uh, is, is essential in terms of personalizing care in a very specific way using genetics and customized aspects of each individual patient. Uh, but I guess the term personalized medicine uh, is maybe more specifically talking about genetics and using genetics to inform care. Um, I guess we'll just start a little bit. You know, you're, you have uh, expertise in Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. Um, tell me a little bit about your background um, in genetics um, and tell us maybe just a little bit about um, how you've been uh, starting to apply the use of genetics to inform care in, in for Alzheimer's patients? Um, so I have a PhD in medical genetics, and specifically I've uh, been working in neurogenetics for, for over a decade now. I started working on Parkinson's disease, and now um, a few years back I started working with you, Richard, on Alzheimer's, in the, your Alzheimer's prevention clinic. And what we're trying to do is... Um, use the knowledge that it's out there on um, risk factors for Alzheimer's and uh, try to uh, find specific mutations or variants in, in the patients that we can then use to uh, apply specific uh, changes in their lifestyle, for instance. Um, so it's something extremely new um, that... Uh, was not done before, and although difficult and challenging at the beginning, it has really, really great promise. So, yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, you know, when we started um, our program, and I think, you know, I, I think most um, practitioners out there, most clinicians out there, um, think of um, genetics and Alzheimer's. When they think of that, they think of one gene, and they think of the ApoE4. Uh, sorry, ApoE gene, and um, ApoE can be um, in a variety of different uh, variants, basically. You have a two, a three, or a four, uh, and you get a two, a three, or four from a mom, and you get two, three, or four from dad, so you can be a 
2-3, a 3-3. Three, 3-3 three. Three, three is by far the most common. Neutral risk, uh, you could be a 3-4, increases risk somewhat, or even a 4-4, four, four, which increases risk uh, even more so. And with the advent of uh, commercial at-home testing, uh, there's a variety of companies now that you can literally send away a, a little kit and you'll come back. And uh, there's a company, for example, that's allowed by the FDA to give the FDA the uh, APOE uh, results uh, to patients. So I think um, practitioners out there need to maybe be a little bit more aware of, of, of not just what APOE is, but also realize that there's a variety of genes out there that contribute to risk. Um, and honestly, I hope one day our field goes to using polygenic risk scores uh, to predict a person's risk in an even more, um, you know, higher fidelity way. And also, you know, for example, there's a, you know, a paper um, in translational psychiatry, I think you may have sent me this paper about a year or so ago, um, you know, showing that Alzheimer's disease polygenic risk score can actually be a predictor of converting uh, from mild cognitive impairment, which is a precursor phase of Alzheimer's to, to the dementia phase. So whether you use um, genes and, and polygenic risk, so uh, you know, uses information to, to predict risk or to tailor therapies, I think both of these aspects are you know, really important with, um, with the future of Alzheimer's care. Um, what do you think about APOE um, as a risk gene versus um, maybe a gene that you could you know, tailor therapies around? Um, what, what are your thoughts? Um, we, to be honest, there is a lot of uh, work and literature out for about APOE, and we know a lot about it. We still don't know a lot about it. <laughs> um, so we know that um, increases the risk of developing Alzheimer's. We know that uh, it's the major risk factor for uh, late onset Alzheimer's disease. And we also know, for instance, that it interacts with sex, which is uh, an unmodifiable uh, risk factor for Alzheimer's. And we know that women with the APOE4 gene are more likely to develop Alzheimer's. They have um, a faster progression of the disease. They have more brain pathology. And so we know all these things about APOE. Uh, we know a little bit about how it works, that it's a lipoprotein, that transports cholesterol, which is extremely important for uh, uh, neurons uh, activity and survival. Um, we, we know a little bit how it interacts also with other genes that are minor risk factors for Alzheimer's, but we still uh, need to understand, uh, for instance, uh, how it increases the risk and what it does to neurons and then what it does to other cells in the brain. Um, and then again, how it interacts with the minor risk factors, like what happens if a patient has APOE4, but also a variant, a mutation in another um, risk has a, you know, a minor risk for Alzheimer's. So once we understand how they actually interact with each other, then it would very, very much help our tailoring, our precision medicine approaches. Yeah, and I, I couldn't agree with you more on all of that. I'm actually going to kind of piggyback from the last comment you said. There's a lot to unpack there and a lot of great content I'm going to go back to. But what you just said about um, how APOE4, if you have a variant or two variants, um, you could have another gene in the system, in, in, your, in the person, that increases risk or another gene that decreases risk and specific genes that interact with APOE4 to increase risk even more so or less so. Um, even there's something called the TOM40, um, and TOM40 is, I guess, um, and uh, pardon me, I got a B in genetics in medical school, but- It's a mitochondrial protein. 
right? So it's a yeah. mitochondrial protein. It's, I guess, a gene that's like very next, very close to on the, on the DNA or something like that. It's, and basically, uh, I may, may be getting this wrong, but the, um, the, the, the chain length of some aspect of TOM40, whether it's long or short, can actually influence whether the ApoE4 that a person has is more pathogenic or less pathogenic or, you know, higher risk or lower risk. So, you know, just knowing that a person has one copy or one variant of ApoE4 doesn't necessarily mean you can truly precisely uh, understand risk without knowing Tom 40, without knowing, uh, you know, the whole gamut of other genes. We have a family that presented in our clinic um, and we spent a lot of time in this family actually, and you helped with this and we had a whole, whole crew helping with this. Um, the family presents with early onset Alzheimer's, but when we did all the early onset genes, they don't have the presenilin one. They don't have amyloid precursor protein gene mutation or presenilin two. They don't have the very, very rare, but but very, very possible early onset gene. So why on earth is this family having early onset Alzheimer's when they have a late onset ApoE4 in their family? Well, this family had another gene. It was this TNF alpha. Uh, related gene. And, and when you have this gene plus E4, you have a six-fold higher risk of Alzheimer's. Plus in this family, uh, there was many women. And there we go again, just like you said, there's an interaction, a sex gene interaction here, where when I see a woman you know, who's 65 or older, so 65, older, age is the number one risk factor for Alzheimer's. You know, a 65-year-old woman with an ApoE4 variant is at much higher risk than, a, than a, a man, for example, with E4 who's younger. So and you, you have this um, you know, synergistic exponential in some ways um, uh, increase of risk through the sex, gene, and age interaction. So um, we really have to um, be cautious about how we interpret genes, uh, both in clinical practice and in, in research settings. Um, and um, you know, just like you said, there's multiple things that we need to consider before truly understanding the, the impact um, on risk as well as the impact on um, you know, how we personalize care. Yeah, if I can um, generalize a little bit, we should imagine, for instance, there is a threshold, right? And then all these genes, like specific variants of these genes can increase the risk. And only once the sum of all these risks reaches the threshold, that's when AD manifests. Or we can start with my cognitive impairment and then that converts to Alzheimer's. So only once we reach the threshold, by the sum of all small effect sizes, then it's when the disease starts developing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And you know what we've we've tried to do. I don't I don't know that there's truly a a universally accepted um, you know perfect uh, polygenic risk score out there. You know, mm -hmm. there's been lots of publications. You know, we can talk about um, you know those for example. Um, you know, we just earlier just talked about a polygenic risk score that predicts you know, conversion uh, from MCI, mild cognitive impairment, the, the earliest symptomatic stage of Alzheimer's, which still is Alzheimer's. It's, it's amyloid in the brain, mild symptoms, but they just haven't progressed to dementia where the person can no longer take care of themselves. Um, but truly understanding, um, you know, uh, how these genes interact and, uh, you know, uh, we need a better polygenic risk score. I, I hope one day we'll be able to take a person's DNA, whether it's through, um, you know, targeted, uh, just checking for, you know, 60 SNPs, you know, the most important ones or the most common or pathogenic or whatever we decide, or you do whole genome sequencing and we can, you know, write a script and basically understand the person's polygenic risk. And then from that, create a, uh, a precision medicine-based, a, a personalized um, intervention plan 
uh, where we can give nutrigenomic, pharmacogenomic uh, interventions based on those genes. Yeah. Um, so the the challenges with uh, uh, having a polygenic risk score that it works as 100%, which is not available right now, right now um, they can predict about 70 to 80% of uh, the conversions, let's say, from MCI to AD or from uh, LT uh, condition to MCI. And I think the challenges um, lie in the fact that there may be other genes that we don't know about. There may be uh, genes that are protective rather than risk factors. And so it's, right now it's hard to predict. And also let's not forget that because Alzheimer's is a complex disease, it's not all about genes. It interacts with the environment. So you can also have two people that have the same mutations, but one could develop Alzheimer's and the other doesn't because of the environment, because of the lifestyle. So these polygenic risk score um, are, are difficult because of the environment contribution as well. So... Yep, and I, I couldn't agree with you more. These epigenetic factors, these, you know, the, the heterogeneity of the population studied, you know, you may find a gene in, in one population in Asia, and then you find the same gene in another population in, in Europe or, or United States, and, and the impact of that, that genetic risk is, is different. Um, and, and, you know, that's why we have to you know, always cross-check. If it's, it's great that we find a study on PubMed or in Snippedia or whatever, you know, tool we're using. Uh, but, but there's a lot, a lot, a lot of complexity here. And, and like you said earlier, that's why, you know, for example, we know a lot about APOE, but we also don't know a lot about APOE. It's the same thing here. We, 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 we know a lot, uh, but we, we just have like so, so much more. This is a, a baseball analogy. I think we're in the second inning, maybe the third inning. Um, uh, I guess... Um, I don't know, in Italy, maybe uh, let's use a football, uh, Americans, American, uh, not, not American football, but soccer analogy. Okay. <laughs> uh, maybe we're, uh, I don't know, past the first period or something like that. We still have a long way to go uh, to truly uh, understand this. But honestly, we're making, we're making progress. Um, you know, there was this paper um, that came across a year and a half or so ago, something like that. And it's actually um, one of the, the senior author was Rudy Tanzi. Uh, it was in uh, Nature Reviews Neurology. I actually got to talk to Rudy yesterday at a prep for this podcast. I had all these questions for him, of course. Um, <laughs> it's the guru of Alzheimer's genetics, right? He is. He is. Yeah, we, we ended up talking mostly about COVID and I had 30 <laughs> minutes like it's a golden 30 minutes uh, we ended up talking about 27 of those minutes about COVID and then three, <laughs> three minutes to catch up about genetics but uh, he published this paper with Lars Bertram um, uh, in Nature Reviews Neurology and the title was Alzheimer's Disease Risk Genes 29 and Counting and you know they described a new genome-wide association study or GWAS they looked at over 600,000 individuals. They identified nine novel Alzheimer's disease risk genes and that raised the total count of independent risk loci to 29. Um, you know, studies like this are just gonna keep on coming and coming and we're gonna learn more and more. But I guess the other part about um, polygenic risk and Alzheimer's risk is it's not just Alzheimer's disease genes uh, and understanding the biological uh, you know, nature and relationship on the pathophysiology. You know, have all these other genes, you have cardiovascular risk genes, you have metabolic risk genes, um, you have, I mean, genes that may or may not, you know, influence your, uh, again, epigenetics. Um, what if you have head trauma, certain genes? Um, I mean, we know how, uh, as you said, cardiovascular risk uh, can increase um, 
or cardiovascular conditions like hypertension can increase the risk of Alzheimer's um, very much, or like in some conditions, it seems even diabetes can increase the risk of Alzheimer's. So, and, and that's why in the Alzheimer's prevention clinic, we don't look only at the uh, Alzheimer's genes, but we also look at these other genes that may uh, present a specific variants let's call it variants or mutations in a patient and we keep that into into account uh, making uh, recommendations right um, I know it seems complicated and it seems like this information is gonna grow exponentially and never stop but I think at one point once once we have uh, multiple studies there uh, and they use data from a large number of individuals, like 700,000 Amelio patients, then at one point, it will stop. At one point, we would have the full picture. And that's when we really uh, be able to uh, apply this personalized medicine to, um, you know, to prevent Alzheimer's, hopefully. Yeah, yeah I, I couldn't agree with you more. And, you know, I am, um, as a clinician, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a clinician, right? And I've, I've, I've kind of been thrown into doing clinical research, you know, I had a little bit of training in clinical research, but, you know, I'm not a geneticist, I'm, I am far from a neurogeneticist, I am, you know, I'm not a genetic counselor, um, but I'm, I, as a clinician, I'm doing the best I can uh, in order to, you know, provide optimal care to patients. And our, our, our settings, you know, different, because it's a hybrid kind of clinic and research model. Um, but I guess I, I just really feel, and, and you know, just, again, being a clinician where I used evidence-based medicine, I applied, you know, fundamental empirical based therapies that, that can help hopefully reduce risk. I guess what I realized over the last um, say seven years or so since um, the, the clinic started and really over the last uh, 10, 11 years since, uh, you know, I really saw my first Alzheimer's prevention patient that to truly decode how or why a person may develop Alzheimer's, what road that person is on. Um, understanding modifiable risk is, is critical. Cholesterol, like, you know, like you said, um, Blood pressure so important, you know. Even controlling blood pressure in the mind study, um, I mean, wow! You could decrease you know, likelihood of developing mild cognitive impairment by you know, almost twenty percent. I mean, that's three years of, of, of more comprehensive blood pressure treatment. I mean, that's 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 terrific. I'm diabetes during midlife, right? Yeah. When in the prodromal phase of uh, Alzheimer's, yeah. Exactly. And like, you know, applying modifiable risk factor reduction techniques, you know, from diabetes and, you know, protecting from head trauma and healthy diet. I mean, exercise. I mean, there's just so many, there's so many things. I'm like losing count of all the different things. A recent meta-analysis showed there were over 20, you know, really um, strong evidence-based things to do. Um, if you, and that's, that's what, without even applying the genetic aspects, right? So, you know, in our, in our practice, excuse me, in our practice, you know, the Lancet Commission 2020 came out and said about 40% of, of dementia cases uh, may be preventable uh, based on modifiable risk factors. You know, my gut has always said minimum of 40 to 50, but, but, or, or possibly a little more. But if we have this genetic component and we really figure out which road a person could be on to Alzheimer's and we understand the biological function of the gene and then, you know, uh, this is tricky, but probably a third of the time that we find these these genes, we'd go on this very deep spelunking mission and needle in a haystack style, and, and we, we find a gene that could, could influence a person's Alzheimer's risk. Only a third of the time do I truly think we can actually know anything about how to intervene against that gene. Um, two, two out of three 
times we find a wrist gene, I don't know what to do. I, I Google and, you know, I ask you and I ask all sorts of different people. Um, yesterday I asked Rudy about a patient and, you know, and Rudy like just nailed it. He, he got it because he actually published one of the first studies, you know, related to uh, infection. And, you know, for example, um, this person had a, had a gene and the person was positive for a herpes virus. And, you know, why is this person young and, and having a, he only has one E4, but why is he having symptoms in the fifties? This doesn't make sense. Well, Maybe we need to get a better control of his herpes infection because that's causing increased amyloid deposition in addition to the E4, in addition to the sleep deprivation, in addition to, you know, the, the suboptimal things that he was doing in his life. And then we make all these changes and then the person does better and we prevent or delay progression to dementia. To truly, I believe, um, prevent um, dementia or, or in as best as we can, whether it's 60, 70% of the time, who knows what we're going to be able to do in five years from now. I think we really have to apply these principles. But, you know, I was really interested that you said 50-50, um, 50% um, <laughs> of risk aspects of Alzheimer's may be related to non-Alzheimer's genes. Wow, that that's reassuring. I mean, I, I would have said like maybe 60-40, 60 towards the Alzheimer's gene. That makes me feel even better because... Uh, <laughs> Uh, wow. Yeah, this is, this is complicated, but um, very cool. Um, I know, I'm a big advocate of Mediterranean diet and exercise. I think they do a lot. So, yeah. yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. And what we need to really figure out is, um, you know, precision nutrition, for example. We can rec make a one-size-fits-all um, recommendation, and the Mediterranean-style diet by far has the most evidence and just as overwhelming evidence that it, that it can protect against um, uh, cognitive decline related and, and Alzheimer's disease related cognitive decline. Uh, but, but in terms of precision nutrition, like one day we're going to be able to check a person's genes and say, well, yeah, Mediterranean styles diet's good for you, but maybe you, you need more um, intermittent fasting and time restricted eating and you need less carbs than the other person or you actually, you're, you can tolerate some carbs. Your, your biology is different. Um, I hope one day we'll be able to, you know, really, really get granular. That'll be That'll be exciting. The reason I would like to add is that the recent studies that um, you mentioned that uh, identified nine uh, novel uh, risk factors for Alzheimer's, um, we always think of DNA as genes, right? But we, um, we never realize, not that we never realized, it's we, we don't think the fact that only 2% of the total genome um, that it's in our cells encodes for genes and everything else it's 98%. It's something that we are just starting now to understand. So um, most of these um, uh, variants that were linked to Alzheimer's, they were identified, they actually fall within that part of the genome or in, in intergenic regions or regions that don't encode for genes that we don't know what they do. And, and so it's going to be not only uh, understand what um, a change in a gene does. It's going to be understanding what a change in the DNA does. Um, it's not to make it more complicated, but I think we're going to make big strides understanding what this non-coding DNA will do uh, for the precision medicine, which is extremely important. So that's that's extremely um, that's extremely uh, important and valid. And um, again, we know a lot, and we don't know a lot either. And we uh, we still have a long ways to go. I think the other thing, and maybe this is like too much for this conversation, but um, you know, the mitochondrial genome, right? Mitochondrial right. genetics. I mean, that's a whole that's a whole different. Um, I mean, like I would love to study mitochondrial genomes and in, in, in our patients and. 
how, how much, how, how much resources do you have? How much time, uh, you know, when do you think, um, this may be again, too much for this conversation. <laughs> um, when do you think mitochondrial genetics will be part of the Alzheimer's disease precision medicine um, approach? I cannot give you a date, but I hope soon. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because we know that mitochondria are the factory of energy for, for the cells, right? They are essential. And also for buffering calcium, for, they're really essential for cells. So we know that dysfunction in mitochondria um, can uh, cause neurodegeneration in Alzheimer's, in Parkinson's. We know how important they are. So I really hope that soon this uh, genome will be incorporated in, in our approaches. Yeah. yeah, I agree. Yeah, that's the, uh, that's, uh, I don't want to say that's the holy grail, but that's like the final missing piece uh, from, from the genetic aspect. So we'll get there. That's a whole, <laughs> a whole di different conversation. But um, before we wrap up uh, and talk a little bit about the, the therapeutic aspect, and what we can do, you know, for example, if a lot of people listening and saying, wow, this is really cool. This is complicated. Um, we're not there yet. So how does this help with my practice? We'll, we'll get to the practical um, uh, clinical aspects in a minute. There was a, a paper uh, in a, a journal, uh, Molecular Neurobiology, uh, came across, uh, and the title was something like um, Synaptic Dysfunction in Alzheimer's and Considering A-Beta, Tau, and Epigenetic Alterations. Um, and, and, you know, we, we talked a lot about how, you know, in the past, Alzheimer's was related to um, uh, amyloid, and maybe it was caused by amyloid. I think that's not really um, maybe something that's, uh, you know, uniquely um, thought of anymore. Uh, amyloid is certainly part of the disease. It's certainly a biomarker, but truly the cause is the downstream effect. Is it, is it tau? Is it mitochondrial? Is it oxidative stress? Is it glucose hypermetabolism? Is it calcium dysregulation? The, the list goes on and on. Is there a, you know, my antimicrobial hypothesis, of course, now of, of, of Alzheimer's. So there's so many different things, and I believe people can take different roads. I think different people uh, can be affected by different types of pathology. But um, when it comes to um, uh, synaptic dysfunction, there's there's been some recent direct links between epigenetic alterations, you know, such as dysfunction in non-coding RNAs. I guess those are NC RNAs uh, and synaptic pathologies, and you know the synaptic uh, uh, dysfunction in Alzheimer's is a whole other area of attack, uh, an area of exploration. Um, so it's really raised um, some interest in exploring the potential roles of these non-coding uh, uh, RNAs in, in synaptic deficits. Um, I know this is a whole other topic, but if you had to summarize um, the potential roles of A-beta, tau, and, and epigenetic alterations by these um, you know, NC RNAs, um, what, what, what would you say? Do you think this is um, ready for prime time yet? Or do you think, um, you know, we still, again, have a little bit of a ways to go? So just to be clear, what, what you mean is like um, how uh, synaptic dysfunction may lead to Alzheimer's? Is that uh, what you're... Yeah, and, and, and what the, you know, how... Um, like, I guess, I guess d define a non-coding RNA. Maybe that would be helpful for listeners. Oh, what, okay. What exactly, what exactly okay. does that mean? So as the name says, non-coding means that these, uh, these RNA, which was um, generated as a copy of our DNA, right, uh, does not, is not being, will not be translated into a protein. And, um, so it's, it's an RNA that can have its own function. 
its function is not to generate a protein, it's, it works on its own. And some of these non-coding are called microRNA, other ones are um, long RNAs depending on their size. And what's, um, what's coming up recently is that uh, they, on their own, they are able to regulate the, um, uh, the synaptic proteins that uh, within the neurons. They are able to regulate presynaptic and postsynaptic uh, proteins. And in, uh, in this way, can, they can really affect communication between, uh, between neurons. Um, and in Alzheimer's, um, it, it doesn't seem there is one direction only. It seems that some of these uh, known coding may be upregulated, other ones can be downregulated in an Alzheimer's condition. So there are a lot of studies going on right now to understand really how uh, they can affect synaptic synaptic function. Gotcha. Okay. So I think I think maybe a deeper discussion, maybe again, kind of beyond the bounds of this uh, discuss this this chat. But again, it just emphasizes the complexity with which um, uh, genetics uh, play a role in Alzheimer's disease, between coding and non-coding and DNA and RNA and mitochondrial DNA. There's a, there's a lot going on, but let's keep things simple. Let's, let's kind of take things back home for, for clinicians that are listening. Um, you know, we wrote a paper uh, back in the journal of prevention of Alzheimer's disease back in uh, late 2018, I believe. And the title of that paper was uh, the clinical application of APOE in Alzheimer's prevention, a precision medicine approach. And what this paper did is what we tried to um, really lay out framework for if a person has the APOE4 variant or, or two variants, for example, uh, what do we do differently uh, from a, you know, prevention, intervention, lifestyle, nutrigenomic, pharmacogenomic, um, you know, also biological factors like sex uh, and behavioral considerations. What do we do differently if a person has an APOE4 variant or not? Um, I guess just to wrap up, um, we, we can't, you know, summarize the entire paper in, um, in, in you know, this, that could take an hour in itself uh, in, a, in a podcast or otherwise. Um, but do you think the field... Uh, and clinicians out there, do you think we're almost ready, uh, ready, or not yet ready to uh, for, for for practitioners to try to use APOE as a um, not just a risk allele, but also a um, a piece of information that guides care? I think we're ready. Yes, I'm confident we're ready. I'm optimistic that we'll be able to integrate also the other risk factors soon, like in a more uh, comprehensive way. But I think we know enough about the effect of APOE and specifically the allele E4 that we can tailor uh, some prevention um, treatments, let's say, um, for personalized, personalized medicine. Yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So, so I, I definitely agree. Um, I, I would say I've gotten a lot of um, flack uh, for, um, you know, trying to incorporate APOE uh, into uh, not just a, a diagnostic, you know, I don't really use it for diagnosis. You know, if a person has it, it doesn't mean they're going to get Alzheimer's and if a person doesn't have it, you know, it certainly doesn't mean they're you know, not going to get Alzheimer's. Um, but um, I really believe, and this paper really sketches it out more, but um, you know, um, APOE4 has lipoprotein, right? It's a cholesterol gene. Um, maybe those people with E4, really, we have to take 
better control of their cholesterol to get them off of the road to Alzheimer's. And, you know, that may be a little bit of a controversial topic, but I think it's really um, true. I, the other thing is, you know, exercise. Exercise may be preferentially effective in, in people with E4, and we really need to titrate the exercise more. Um, you know, people with two E4 variants, you know, the studies on vitamin D have been a little bit all over the place, but there was a study few years ago that we mentioned in this paper that, you know, maybe, maybe the people with two APOE4 variants that are on vitamin D, maybe those are the people that preferentially benefit. Um, new study came out, had a lot of press with uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Hussein Yassin, uh, looked at omega-3 fatty acids and omega-3s, you know, failed when given for people with Alzheimer's dementia back in 2008. Uh, but now when we use it for risk reduction and prevention, we're realizing that people with the APOE4 variant or, or two need a much higher dose. So it may just been a, a problem with dose related. E4 positive people need, need higher dose, need a lot of DHA, you know, two grams or more. Uh, Maybe you know, supplementation yeah. with uh, vitamin B complex as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because it's a, it's a synergistic effect. And if you're not, um, you know, if you don't have adequate levels of for example, omega-3s in the blood, B-complex vitamins don't help when to, to slow brain atrophy and improve memory in, in the Vitacog studies. And those are people that had high homocysteine. So, so the take-home point with all this, you're, you just, again, hit the nail right on the head. It's, it's about the genes. It's about other factors like homocysteine. It's about which, which well, okay, B-complex vitamins. Well, what do you mean by that? What, what, what's the dose? Is it methylcobalamin, cyanocobalamin? And it's not just about DHA, but it's maybe DHA is preferentially effective in in, in, in APOE4 positives, maybe that's the case, maybe not, but we think it could be, but you have to have it at high doses and, and you have to have it as young as possible because the E4, um, you know, really starts causing wreaking havoc, uh, you know, a decade or two or more before, um, before symptoms. Even babies that are born with APOE4 have smaller brains at birth. So um, I, think, I think all of these things, it's again, too complicated for a, for a 30 minute podcast, but um, I think that the future is, is coming and hopefully in part the future is now. So Roberta, any, any final thoughts before we wrap up? Well, I just want to go back to this uh, APOE4 um, before we close. Just let's not forget that it's important to know also if a woman uh, has APOE4, E3 or 2, because then um, it's, the recommendations will be tailored to that. We know, as I said before, that women are higher risk for Alzheimer's. So knowing that is extremely important for the clinician. Yeah, yeah, couldn't agree with you more. So Roberta, um, we could talk forever, but um, thank you so much for, for your time today. I uh, learned a lot and uh, we will um, hope to do this again. And, and um, the next podcast we do is probably gonna have to be an hour because of the explosion of evidence uh, uh, out there with Alzheimer's. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, of course. Um, so again, thanks, uh, thanks for listening. Uh, this has been a, uh, a podcast uh, on the, today's topic of the role of genetics and mechanisms of synaptic dysfunction, uh, sponsored by and provided by academics.